Herod. And now we will look in the feeding of the 5,000 and really another banquet put on by Jesus Christ. And Mark puts these side by side to really set them in contrast for us, put them in, in juxtaposition to see just how different that they are. If you remember with Herod, as they come into the fortress or the palace, and there he has kind of a, a luxurious, over-the-top feast set up. For Jesus, in this scene with the feeding of the 5,000, the scene is the rolling hills of Galilee. And while it is very simple what he feeds them, we will see that it is in abundance. We see for Herod, his motives. He comes selfishly. He comes trying to promote himself, trying to build up his reputation. He comes in insecurity, trying to, to gain others through flattery. For Jesus, he comes and he sees the need and he comes with compassion. He comes serving. For Herod, it's the elite, the powerful that are invited in order for Herod to look rich, to look luxurious. With Jesus, it is those who are needy that he feeds. And so these two stand in contrast for us. And in so doing, what it does is it instructs for us the nature of the kingdom, the nature of the king by contrasting Jesus and what he is coming and offering and how he is offering it compared to Herod and what he is offering. And so we begin to see the nature of the king, the nature of the kingdom. And yet this morning, as we take a few minutes to look at the feeding of the 5,000, I don't want to look at it just globally, but I want to see it individually as well. That is that it's not just Jesus globally as king, but Jesus as your savior, meeting your need, showing compassion to you. And so there's both a general and an individual sense about it. It's interesting, we've learned by now as we've gone through Mark, and I'm assuming you've seen this with really all the Gospels, that they tell the same stories a lot of times. Am I getting louder? They tell the same stories a lot of times, but as they do so, they do so with a different emphasis. And so they're not changing the stories, not adding details, but they're emphasizing certain things because they're, they're trying to communicate some sort of truth to us. When you come to the feeding of the 5,000, if you look at Matthew and Luke as they tell it, it tends to emphasize the crowd somewhat. It talks about their need and their amazement. So it looks at the crowd. If you were to look at John, as John tells it, like much of John, it's told in a very theological way. And so at the conclusion of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus moves into telling them what their true need is, and that is him, that he is the bread of life, that they must feast upon his flesh. And from that, we're instructed and we learn a template for the Lord's table. For Mark, as he tells it, he's answering the same questions he's been answering for us. Who is Jesus? So as he tells the feeding of the 5,000, what it does is it gives us insight into who Jesus is. And it really focuses on the disciples and Jesus' relationship with the disciples. And so as we go through it, that is what we'll highlight, what is what we'll see is who Jesus is and what that means then in the relationship to his disciples. Really we'll see three things. One, that Jesus is compassionate to the weak and the weary. Jesus is compassionate to the weak and the weary. Secondly, Jesus is the promised shepherd king. 
And third, Jesus gives abundantly. Jesus gives abundantly. We begin there in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done or taught. If you remember the beginning of chapter 6, he calls the 12 together and he sends them out on mission. He empowers them to perform signs and miracles in his name, to teach in his name. When they're received, they are to rely upon the hospitality of people. And when they are not received, it's not their problem. They shake the dust off their feet and the Lord will have his way. And so they've been ministering for a long time, or for a season now. And as they return to Jesus, we see kind of that prerequisite of discipleship, of the going out, but then coming again and being at the feet of Jesus. So they return to Jesus, they're sitting at his feet. You can see verses 31, 32, Jesus recognizes, man, they're, they're exhausted. They're beat, they're weary from what God has called them to do. Verse 31, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. He sees that they need rest. His heart is moved with compassion for his own disciples. I'm sure there's tension with the the beheading of John the Baptist, with all the clamoring around them that just as Jesus always brought some fascination in a crowd, whether they rejected or received them, it always was surrounded by attention. The disciples now performing these signs and miracles and teaching in Jesus' name are receiving that same attention. And they're exhausted. They're beat. Jesus says, come away with me and rest. But we see quickly... The disciples do not get the rest that they were hoping for, the rest that Jesus had suggested to them. Verse 33, and now many, many saw them going as they got on the boat, headed down to find a desolate area. Many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Now, I can imagine the disciples at this point, I don't know what they were expecting Jesus to see, but they're exhausted. They need some rest. Jesus said, let's go by ourselves, get some rest. When they see this crowd, I'm guessing they're hoping Jesus says like, no, 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 no. We need some alone time, some me time. Like just either we'll find another place. You you need to give us some space. And the disciples, I'm sure, would have been glad to hear that. But no, we see Jesus' reaction Verse 34, he sees the great crowd and he has compassion on them. He begins to teach them many things. We'll look at just a moment at Jesus' compassion upon the crowd, but I do think it is worth stopping and asking the question, what about the rest? What about the rest that the disciples need and that Jesus said he's going to give them? I think it's important to ask because I think often in our own lives we can read the promises of God, we hear them, we rehearse them, that he'll give us rest, that he'll give us clarity, that he'll give us wisdom, that he'll give us peace, that he'll give us strength. And then maybe you're in, you're ministering to someone else, you're caring, you're giving towards other people. And it's just exhausting and you're ready for that rest. Or perhaps it's just the the life of faith you are living right now. And one trial comes and you just, you want to get past it 
for that rest. But then you do and something else comes and something else comes. And it feels like at times, if we're honest, okay, when is the rest coming? When is the peace coming? When is the clarity coming? Because I'm on this journey and it's hard and I'm exhausted and I'm pretty much worn out. And I turn the corner and I see I'm still just going uphill. The needs of people, me giving it, it's still there. Where's the rest? And I think this text is here to help us understand in some sense that Jesus is compassionate to his disciples. He sees when you are weary in life's journey. He sees when you are just beat down and bogged down. There's not clarity, whether it's because of ministry or just the struggle of life. And he promises rest, but very often that rest doesn't come from the removal of your ministry responsibilities, from the removal of hardship, from the removal of difficulty. We find rest by being hidden in Jesus Christ in the midst of that. We find rest at Jesus' feet, not because everything else is taken off the plate, but because when we come to the end of ourselves, we realize that he gives us strength. That he is our wisdom when we don't know what is taking place. That he is compassionate. That he does care. We're going to see that with the disciples. That they are at the end of themselves. And some of the ministry that he's going to call them to, they're unable to perform. And yet Jesus gives the strength. Jesus gives the rest. They find their rest in him. You know, the Lord has set up that rest principle in creation. Pastor Adam highlighted a little bit of this last week. It's repeated then in the, in the commandments of, of Sabbath rest. And what it is, is, is as we labor, as we, we, we can just easily throughout the week start to rely on our own strength and our own wisdom and our own abilities to get us through something. That Jesus establishes this pattern to step back and rest. Not that come Monday, now all my work's off the plate. No, that you still live in the midst of hard things. There's still responsibilities. But we find the sufficiency of Christ when we come to the end of ourselves. We find that in Christ, He does give us the strength needed. That your pastor, that your neighbor, that your, your, your uh, spouse, whoever it might be, cannot provide you, Jesus can he can give you clarity, rest, and peace. We see that in the compassion of Jesus to his disciples, even though it's not the rest that they were praying for or that they were hoping for. Jesus gives them rest. Jesus is compassionate. But as the crowds arrive, we see that Jesus looks upon them with compassion. He says it there in verse 34. He has compassion on them. He begins to teach them many things. In there, we'll look at it just a little bit more in our next point. But he has compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. When you look at the other gospel accounts, you see why the people are coming. They think they want to make Jesus king. But not in the sense that Jesus is offering himself as their king. They want a revolution. They want a revolutionary king that's going to give them some political might that's going to give them maybe some military strength and to overthrow in a physical sense. 
And so they, they, they come and they need a king to lead them. And so they come and Jesus begins to teach and instruct them. And we're told from the very beginning of Mark that Jesus, as he travels, he teaches one thing. The gospel of the kingdom. Repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand. When he says the kingdom is at hand, he's saying, I am here. The king is here. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe. The kingdom is not for military might. The kingdom is when you recognize as poor in spirit that you have a need and there is only one person that can meet that need. And that is Jesus Christ. And Jesus is moved with compassion on them. In the American church, I think often... The church kind of swayed real far into the relational aspect of Christianity in this relationship with God. And that it lost a lot of its theology and bearings in the greatness and majesty and sovereignty of God. And it just became much more about, well, how I feel and how I feel God's treating me and God is truth is based on how I feel and how surrendered I am and all of these type of things. And so we come back and we want to correct it with true categories of of theology of who God is and his simplicity and his sovereignty and these amazing things. And yet we don't want to lose in a pendulum swing the relational aspect that Jesus individually has compassion on you. That when he looks and he sees the lostness, the weakness of these people, he's not disgusted. He's not annoyed. But what it does is it moves in him pity and compassion. Aren't you thankful that in your weakness, in your uncertainty, in your insecurity, Jesus responds to you relationally with compassion? Not with a roll of the eyes, get it together. And he gives us rest. He provides compassion. Secondly, then, we see that Jesus is the promised shepherd king. And you see it in that statement there in verse 34. He sees that they are like sheep without a shepherd. You can almost imagine that the hillsides and this desolate area and the people kind of crawling down over the hills coming to them. When I was oh, like eight, nine years old, um, my family moved to New Zealand as missionaries. We lived there for a little bit. And I'm not going to remember the stat, but I think it's something like the sheep outnumber the people 100 to 1, something like that. When you're on deputation raising support, you have a slideshow. At least it used to be a slideshow you click through. And you hear the same recording again and again of, for me, my dad talking about the needs of New Zealand. So I didn't memorize for a long time, but now it's gone. But anyways, I remember driving through New Zealand, and it really was just the hillsides were spotted with sheep everywhere. And you can almost picture it as these people come crawling down the hillsides towards Jesus, the picture of it, and he sees them, and they're like sheep without a shepherd. Really, though, what he's doing is drawing on Old Testament imagery. In Old Testament imagery, the shepherd is the king, the leader. He's the one who gives direction and leadership. So you see that build through the Old Testament. You see it beginning and really that you start to see these parallels between this scene and the scene of Moses in the wilderness. But Moses serves as the shepherd of God's people as a sheep. And so we have Moses in the wilderness with all the people around. You have Jesus here in a desolate place with the people 
all around him. There's need of food, and God provides the food in both cases. Even in verse 40, you'll see here in our text that um, Jesus divides the people up into groups of 50s and 100s, and it's the same way that Moses divides the people up in the Old Testament. It's drawing our minds to this imagery so that we'll see Jesus, we see Moses as the shepherd of God's people, the leader of God's people there in the wilderness. And here we see Jesus as the true and the better Moses, offering his shepherdly kingship to these people. In fact, if you read in verse in, in Numbers 27, Moses coming to the end of, of his life, and he, he who's going to step up and lead these people next? And he says, it's, we know it's going to be Joshua who will step up. But he says that we need to find a leader who will step up. Otherwise, they will be sheep without a shepherd. They'll be wandering aimlessly, a sheep without a shepherd. And so Joshua steps up and he fulfills that role. But we know that he is not the final fulfillment of that role. It comes back up as you go through the prophets. You, you see it in Kings. You see it in Chronicles as the prophets speak to Ahab. And they say, because of your wickedness, judgment is going to come. Because of your wickedness, the people will wander around lost as sheep without a shepherd. You then move forward. You come to Ezekiel. And as the people are still wandering and lost, and you see it as a punishment, a sheep without a shepherd, he promises, though, that he will provide a shepherd. Listen to some of this language from Ezekiel 34. It says, My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. And then the prophet speaking, thus saith the Lord, I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There shall they lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. I am the Lord forever. I have spoken. Jesus is the true and greater Moses. Jesus is the true and greater David. He will be the shepherd who will care for his sheep, who will feed his sheep, who will cause them to lie down in the green pastures. And so it's an indictment. You look at Herod. Herod should have been, the, he's the vassal king over Israel. He should have been caring for them. But no, he's just so moved by his own selfishness and insecurity, not compassion. He'd rather protect his reputation than save the life of John the Baptist. Well, maybe the priests of the day, the religious leaders, they should have been providing the shepherding, the leading, but they have failed. And so Jesus comes, he says, my people, I see that they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he begins to meet their needs. He begins to care for them. He begins to provide for them. Jesus is our shepherd king. The question is asked, if you remember, at the beginning of, of the episode with Herod, that Jesus is coming onto the seed. Herod is just beginning to realize who he is. And he says, well, maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's a prophet of old. Maybe it's John the Baptist come back to life. So the question is asked, who is Jesus? And it's not answered in that first episode because it's about John the Baptist losing his head. But now you get to this section and the question is answered, who is Jesus? He is the compassionate, abundant 
faithful shepherd king. It's true for us. Finally, Jesus gives abundantly. Third point we see is that Jesus gives abundantly. Verse 35, when it grew late, it's funny here, you can see the disciples, they, you know, they've been obedient. They wanted rest. The Lord said, keep going. They kept going. But now they see an opportunity. I can almost see them thinking through it here. Verse 35, it grew late and his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So we're like, here's our chance. <laughs> Enough's enough. Like, let's send them away. We'll get a moment. We'll finally get some rest here. And look what Jesus says to his disciples in response in verse 37. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. (laughs) I'm going to feed my sheep. I'm going to use my disciples to do it. You can't blame the disciples. The tone here is a bit incredulous, maybe a little disrespectful, but, you know, we'll give them a little bit of a break here. Verse 37, they said to him, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Like, what's your plan here exactly? He wants to go in and just find a village somewhere and buy all the food with money we don't have and feed them? Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass so that they sat down. Well, first, I'm sorry, verse 38. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. So he tells them, okay, we'll go see what you can round up. And you know the story. Picture the flannel graph, five loaves, two fishes. 5,000, it says 5,000 men is the word that's used here. So more than likely you were looking at like 15, 20,000 people. We've got five loaves and two fishes. You can see that they are, why the disciples don't understand what's going on and yet they obey. The Lord provides, and so we continue to see there. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties in verse 41, and taking the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven, and he said a blessing, and he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate, and they were all satisfied. You notice again, the emphasis here is on the interaction between Jesus and his disciples. He's called them to this ministry that they clearly don't have the wisdom or the power to accomplish on their own. They don't. They're not sure how it's going to take place. They have their own moment of frustration. They're human beings. And then they step forward and Jesus provides. Jesus gives them the strength. And not just to barely meet the needs. The people aren't just like held over until they can make it back to the village. No, they sit down and he provides abundantly. They are fully satisfied and there's a bunch of leftovers. We get a picture of Jesus' compassion and care. Not only for the crowd, but for his disciples. We get a picture of that in our own lives, that Jesus is compassionate not to just barely get us through the moment, but to abundantly supply. 
I think it was John Piper who first said it and then Tim Keller kind of repeated it when Tim Keller was battling cancer. He recently passed from it. But they used the, the phrase, the idea of don't waste your cancer. And it was just as an emblem to whatever is going on in your life, don't waste it. And I think what lies behind it is the, the trouble, the hardship, what, what needed, the, the goal wasn't like, I just need to survive it and get through. I just want it to go back how it was. I just need to exist through this. But you think, no, the Lord brings these things into your need that reveal your weakness so that he can supply his compassion, not just to get you through, but that he can supply it abundantly that your faith would grow, that you would be a different person on the, out, on, the, on the other side of the trial. And knowing that the trial just might be met with another one and another one. I go back to Romans 8 often in these situations, but I feel like it's so helpful that Jesus uh, supplies abundantly. And he's done so because we see Romans 8.32, he's already given us the greatest gift. He has given us Jesus Christ. He spared him no pain. He gave him over for us, that God in the flesh would come and die for us. That already is abundant. He has supplied for us abundantly, but it only guarantees more abundance. As 30 Romans 8.32 says, if he spared not his own son for us, but gave him up freely for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? <laughs> Everything that you need is guaranteed to you because he gave us Jesus Christ. If he gave us Christ, he's not going to leave us languishing. He will supply abundantly. It comes back up a few verses later, if you remember, in Romans 8. It begins to start talking about all the trials that you're still going to face, a famine and nakedness and burden and death. In verse 37, he says, But in all of these things, he gave us Jesus, with him he gave us all things, and in all these things, he makes you an overwhelming conqueror. Through him who loved us and gave himself for us. He supplies abundantly. His compassion is immense and abundant. Not just enough to squeak you through, but overflowing. It might not be the rest that you're, the relief that you're praying for. But in Christ it will be exactly what you need and it will be abundant. see there as it ends verse 42 and they all ate they were satisfied and they took up the 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men they are satisfied it answers that question for us introduced with Herod who is Jesus he's the shepherd king he's the promised one where others fail, he will not. And he has compassion on his sheep. Relational, individual compassion. And he provides abundantly. There, there's one last sort of reference I, I'm almost certain Mark's intentionally making for us. As we talk about sheep, as we talk about a shepherd, as we talk about providing, even as the language in verse 39, he commanded them all to go sit down in groups on the green grass. It, it draws to mind Psalm 23, doesn't it? The Lord is our shepherd. I'm going to close just by reading Psalm 23. 
there's certain texts I'm convinced that the Lord just blesses. I mean, all of God's word is inspired and life-giving. But there's certain texts that just the reading of it, just the hearing of it, is able to lift the soul and give strength and breathe some, some fresh life and energy into your life. Maybe it's a different text for some of us, but I think almost universally Psalm 23 works that way. So in the context of what we just read, of Jesus caring for his disciples, caring for those in need, the glimpse into the eschatological, or that future rest which will be ours, with that in the backdrop, please let me close by reading Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for how we're instructed.